Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. You didn't think I was going to go away for a couple months again, did you? But as per the usual, remember to check out the website at dormroomhistory.com slash the history of China for the post for this week's episode and the posts for all the other episodes. A special thanks again to those of you who have donated, and be sure to follow the show and rate it five stars. It, it may not seem like a lot to you, but it really means a lot to me. And feel free to email me questions. Several of you have taken me up on that, and I love hearing from you guys, even if it's to critique the show. But whatever it is, I love talking to you guys, and I love hearing from you. But last time, we covered the Battle of Mo Bay. The battle was pretty much the most decisive thing that could have happened, as while it did not end the Xiongnu entirely, we're going to keep hearing about them a little bit, it effectively ended the Xiongnu as a threat. But the Han-Xiongnu War was one conflict. If you are not a military history fan, don't worry, the show is not taking some new focus. The fact is, Emperor Wu doubled the size of the Han Dynasty. Doubled it. So military history here just carries a lot of weight in this particular moment in time. South China, North Vietnam, Korea, you name it, Emperor Wu is going to try and take it. And does take them. And of course, there was indeed more than just war. Even if there was a lot of it, there was obviously more. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 33. Han Supernova. In our deep dive into the Xiongnu conflict, I had to negate several smaller conflicts and incidences that happened just before and during the Han Xiongnu War. The Han Xiongnu War, and pardon me if you're getting sick of hearing about it, but that war was the most expensive, crazy, intriguing, massive, you name it war that happened, not just under Emperor Wu, but really of the ancient world up until this point, at least in my opinion. In 135 BC, before the Han Xiongnu War kicked off, Emperor Wu showed his expansionistic mindset, but not in the north. Instead, in this early stage of his reign, he began showing it in the south. We know that the Qin Dynasty had gone after the southern tribes before to varying degrees of success because, yes, like so many others after them, ran into problems against the guerrilla tactics of the local inhabitants in the Southeast Asian jungles. I'm not going to cram in another joke about that. <laughs> you guys can go back and hear it. Though, you may be thinking and asking yourself, hey, wait. The Qin did build those huge canals. They did take over wide swaths of land, but the Qin did collapse a long time ago. Whatever happened to those southern regions in the meantime? Well, in the chaos of the Qin's collapse, the ensuing civil war, and then the seemingly heat-seeking missile focus on the northern frontiers, many of these southern areas and tribes were able to break away or at least establish more autonomy for themselves. The Han from the get-go of the dynasty were extremely invested in maintaining order, client kingdoms, and direct and indirect influence, if not control, in these southern regions. 
Yes, grip had been lost since the fall of the Qin, but they weren't just ignoring the region. The Han Dynasty early on established and procured several vassal kingdoms by 180 BC. And now of note, one of these vassal areas is known as Eastern O, OU. And in 138 BC, the Eastern O was begging the Han Dynasty for military assistance. So this is before the Hanshongnu War. And quickly and importantly, however, in describing tribes and states and kingdoms in the south, you will hear the word Yue a lot. Y-U-E. And that is because, similar to the Xiongnu, and this is a bad comparison, but in basics, the Yue are really, in the simplest terms, southern tribes. There is the kingdom of Nanyue. There are the Baiyue tribes. There is the Minyue region and tribes. Yue tribes is a description for the predominant tribal group in the region. No, they are not one confederation, and you will see that shortly, but they are a culturally related group of independent tribes and kingdoms. You could call them like Germanic or Celt if you're more into European history. They are a different peoples who don't get along, but they're of a culturally similar background. So, in 138 BC, the Eastern O region, which was backed by the Han, this is a vassal kingdom of the Han dynasty, they beg Emperor Wu for military assistance because the Minyue are attacking them. M-I-N-Y-U-E. And this creates a sort of political issue because the imperial Han court is anything but in agreement on what to do about this situation. Do you support them? Do you not? Do you just take them all over? Do you let them be? So the then supreme commander of the Han military believed intervention would be the wrong thing to do. He said, look, sure, we maybe owe it to them, but the best case scenario is that, well, it's not that great. And the worst case scenario is really bad. If we go in there and we help them, great. And we succeed, fantastic. But if we fail and we lose thousands of troops and we lose credibility, we could end up losing more than just the Eastern O region. And he also pointed out that the Yue tribes the Han would have to ally with are anything but reliable or trustworthy. And even if these Yue tribes did not turn on the Han, they often would just turn on each other. So yeah, even if you got them to ally with you, and then they didn't turn on you, there's a good chance these Yue tribe allies that you need to have in the region would just turn on each other and become useless. They are hardly the best allies to have. And moreover, he also pointed out that, in all honesty, it's maybe not even our responsibility at all to defend them. What is a vassal kingdom anyway? But then an official, according to Sima Qian himself, who, yes, is actually alive right now, by the way, said this. The official speaking said, allegedly, The only thing we should worry about is whether we have strength enough to rescue them and virtue enough to command their loyalty. Now a small country has come to report its distress to the Son of Heaven. If he does not save it, to whom can it turn for aid? And how can the Son of Heaven claim that the rulers of all the other states are like sons to him if he ignores their pleas? End quote. This 
is a multi-layered quote. It blends the court practices and the back and forth of political discourse, which is awesome, but it's also rife with the political philosophy of the era. The son of heaven is the emperor, and that idea is crucial here. It blends the philosophical and political mindsets of the day. Now, that official's name was Zhuang Zhu, and not only did he convince the emperor to intervene by essentially saying, you're the son of heaven, if you don't go in there, you're disobeying your own duties to heaven. That official's name was Zhuang Zhu. And not only did he convince the emperor to intervene, but he himself was given command of the naval force that ended up being sent down there and successfully pushed out the attacking tribes. And that's the son of heaven thing is big here because, again, Zhuang Zhu, this official, was able to convince Emperor Wu to do something by saying, look, you are the son of heaven. If you don't help your children, the vassal kingdoms, you're letting down your role and your prestige and your honor. Now, three years later in 135 BC, Min Yue again caused the Han headaches. Again, three years later, because they go into the region and attack Nanyue. Now, Nanyue, N-A-N-Y-U-E, is like Eastern O. It's a Han vassal. And they, too, asked for help. But by this point, the Minyue themselves were not all on one page. And the Minyue king, during this invasion of Nanyue, was assassinated by his own younger brother. So, with a strong Han military presence incoming, and there, and the king dead, the Minyue were once again defeated. This time, though, the Han dynasty and Emperor Wu, well, they've seen enough. They broke the Minyue kingdom up into two states, ruled together in a dual monarchy. Minyue, one of the regions, was ruled by a puppet king of the Han, and the other region, now named Dongyue, which really means Eastern Yue, was ruled by the younger brother who killed his king brother. So two people that are pretty in line with the Han are now running that area. But nothing really then happens, because we're in 135, something's about to break out, and it's the Han Xiongnu War. And we know the massive scope of that conflict well by now. I hope I have not hammered it too hard, but yeah. We discussed, though, how in 119 BC, the Han, while victorious, had also sacrificed so much. They had massively grown the dynasty to the north and west. But Emperor Wu was not one to sit around and dilly-dally. And within seven years, he was expanding again. So they did this little intervention into the south. The Han Xiongnu War breaks out. They can't do that anymore. And you think, wow, they're tired. They did this great big thing. Maybe it's time to rest on our laurels. And no. Because like a real supernova, everything is seemingly about to be engulfed by the Han Dynasty all at once. So the Han Xiongnu War ends. And Nanyue, just mentioned above, before the Han Xiongnu War, was a vassal kingdom getting military assistance. The Han had an ace in the hole in the fact that the Empress Dowager of Nanyue was indeed a Han native. 
So in 112 BC, with prodding from the Han imperial court, this empress dowager pushed for a unification of Nanyue with the Han dynasty. Essentially, they're saying, why be a vassal when you could be a part of the Han dynasty? But the nobles there, who were more or less native, with very little Han dynasty connection, went berserk at this. They had effectively stopped giving tribute to the Han dynasty during the Han Xiongnu War, and they were not about to just go from that, almost solitary neglect, to jumping into being a state of the Han dynasty and ruled by the emperor? Come on. That's a bit too much to ask. So, what did they do? Well, they went and killed this pro-Han dynasty queen. The Han dynasty see this, though, and take it as a sign of revolt. They use that as the impetus to send 2,000 troops in, but the Han were defeated. They say, ha, it's a revolt. They killed their queen who wants to join the Han. They send 2,000 troops in, and those troops are defeated, and the emperor's pan-picked general is killed in this expedition. But if you're thinking the Han aren't going to give up, you're right. 2,000 troops, as we know, is a joke when compared to the true Han capabilities we have seen. So, later in 112 BC, after this little defeat, the Han dynasty sends 100,000 soldiers. And this time, they are not defeated. By 110 BC, Nanyue, at least for now, is fully under Han control. And again, broken record, 100,000, yeah, it's a bit much, probably not what happened. But they sent 2,000 and then sent allegedly 100,000. And if it's not 100,000, you get the picture. They sent an army. Now, this wasn't the only region, though. So Nanyue, which will be on the map, you'll see, is now under the Han control, as well as all the northern and western regions from the Han Xiongnu War. But this brings us to the region of Dian. Due to the Han Xiongnu War in the north, the cost of administering and keeping up commanderies in fringe areas not related to the war was expensive. What ended up happening is that the Han did lose a little bit of land. They gained more, but they lost a lot. So in 109 BC, one year after they go and sort out Nanyue, Emperor Wu sends troops into Dian and recaptures the region and then takes some more on top of it. It had been sort of a frontier area for the Han. They had to sort of give it up a little bit because they were spending money, troops, resources in the Han Xiongnu War. And now that that's over, they turn their attention back, retake it, and establish it back into the kingdom and take some more. Though, Dian, remember that, Dian, D-I-A-N. Dian's going to be important because Dian really doesn't want to be a part of the Han Dynasty. And there were commanderies there, which means they were essentially under military occupation. They're going to start leading rebellions early and often against the Han Dynasty. But for now, under Emperor Wu in 109 BC, they reestablish their commanderies, and they are essentially taking over the entire region. But that brings us to probably my most favorite of these expeditions. This is the Han conquest of Korea. In modern-day North Korea, 
an ex-Chinese rebel from a long time ago in his family, had usurped the throne of Gojoseon. And I could be pronouncing that wrong. If someone in the audience speaks Korean, tell me how G-O-J-O-S-E-O-N is pronounced. If I'm butchering it, please forgive me. Again, I don't speak French. I don't speak Latin. I speak Chinese. So after a few early snafus and subtly aggressive maneuvers from this Korean king and some Han governors, in 109 BC, the same year they deal with Dian, they're going into Korea. It is the Han supernova, and it is going to continue its unrelenting expansion. In 109 BC, Emperor Wu launches a military invasion into Gojoseon. Now, what he does is he sends an army through land over the north end and then sends a navy right across the strait. Two-pronged attack. They go right for the capital, and the result, after a couple early, you know, inconclusive, maybe defeats, maybe victories, it's a clear Han victory, and it's fast. Four commanderies are set up in modern-day North Korea. Boom. It's crazy. They send 50,000 men through a navy. They send another probably 50,000 numbers unclear from the north. And they just wipe out another region and take it over. It's insane. And the Han supernova is unrelenting. We went over how much they sacrificed in the Han Xiongnu War. And Emperor Wu is out there taking more. But don't worry. Obviously, this much war and expansion is going to put stress on the pocketbook. So, don't worry, we'll get to that. Now, I will say, I have obviously had to blow through several smaller conflicts and expansion missions quite quickly in the interest of time. But if enough of you request more information on one of these expansions or two of them, I could look to make a supplemental for it. The invasion of Korea is quite interesting, but you now can see what I mean by Han Supernova the expanding, exploding star. It's going everywhere. It's unstoppable. Emperor Wen laid that foundation so that Emperor Wu could be doing what he is doing right now. But there is obviously more to the Han Dynasty than just war and conquest. And there's more to Emperor Wu as well. So, shall we? Emperor Wu was not Emperor Wen. Emperor Wu, for his part, was much more authoritarian. Now, he was no Qing Shi Huangdi, but alas, he was much more strict and a little more iron-fisted in his court than his predecessors. And there are reasons for this, and I will quickly take this moment to interject my own potential theory. Now, this is not the main reason. This is just one of many that led him to do this because we're going to talk about some more factual ones. So, as you are aware of now... Emperor Wu was a wartime emperor, if there ever was such a thing. Some of these wars were because he picked the fight, others were because they fell into his lap, but he's a wartime emperor nonetheless. And as a contemporary fan of history, as many of you probably are, we are aware of wartime powers leaders can latch themselves onto. The Chronicles don't paint a legal picture for Emperor Wu suing for more wartime power in times of need, but in a time of immense spending of money, horses, 
resources, men, food, you name it, it would only seem natural for a leader to grab more authority. But there are obviously other reasons, and we're going to get to them right now. Let's fill ourselves in on who Emperor Wu was outside of just war. And for that, what was his court like? While his predecessors, Emperor Wen and Emperor Jing, did have many Confucian scholars, and they did lean heavily into Confucian thought, politically, it was the Taoist principles that still held the most sway. Hey, we saw that under the great Emperor Wen. We saw that. The Taoist Wu Wei ideology was great for Emperor Wen. It allowed him to have a much more relaxed and decentralized approach, and after the brutal civil war and the financial issues, it was great because it also had non-intervention. A lot of these relaxed and non-interventionist policies were great for the Han at that time under Emperor Wen. But these policies eventually stopped solving the older problems and began just creating new ones. The Rebellion of the Seven States, the Xiongnu's rampant incursions, being two prominent examples of what non-intervention and decentralization gets you. It gets you states that don't listen, and it gets you enemies who aren't fought back upon. Hawkeye listeners will remember, however, a man named Jia Yi, the Confucian advisor for Emperor Wen, who said, look, it's time to break down these states who were within our dynasty because they're getting too independent and they're getting too autonomous and as a result they're getting a little feisty. And while Emperor Wen did implement many Confucian ideas from Jia Yi, we know that he never did take that step. He never took the big step and implemented an actual more centralized approach in dealing with these potentially soon-to-be rebelling states. Emperor Jing, though, as we know, conceded to that and got it done in regards to these Han kings. But for his part, he stopped short of actually attacking the Xiongnu. So it's a very slow dip your feet into Confucianism, dip your feet into more centralization. But it's a very slow and gradual move towards it. Emperor Wu, though, was the culmination of all of this. He wasn't just going to dip his feet into Confucian and political theory one issue at a time. He was going to upend the norm. So, going back a little bit, in just 141 BC, right as his reign starts, he initiates the Jianyuan reforms. These reforms, first off, saw Confucianism be endorsed as the dynasty-wide philosophy. But they also often targeted the gross and overbloated and corrupt nobles. These reforms sought to, amongst other things, get the nobles out of the capital so they could stop the constant lobbying to the Han officials to pay for stuff that they could pay for themselves. Essentially, this is what would happen. Nobles would make a lot of money in their fiefs. They would then come and live in the capital and then get the Han to still pay for stuff, even though they were making their own money at home. But Emperor Wu also told the nobles through these reforms that they had to stop erecting their own checkpoints. Yeah, they were doing that, and you really can't do that. You can't just erect your own checkpoints and tax people however you want and alter traffic and have these semi-autonomous regions that are doing their own thing. It's corrupt. It's a great way to make money, but it's corrupt. 
on top of all of this, Emperor Wu also wanted people to actually snitch on and later prosecute corrupt nobles. He then also pushed for a pretty consistent thing we've talked about before, but he wanted to recruit and hire government officials based on merit, not noble name. The Han were constantly trying to stop and battle that age-old problem of family-run monopolies and high government posts. But these reforms mostly ended up getting blocked and resisted. And they obviously won Emperor Wu no friends in the nobility who quite liked their special privileges, thank you. And his own grandma, the Grand Empress Dowager, she hated them too, and she stoked said resistance. So he doesn't have support from his family, he doesn't have support from the nobles, but luckily for Emperor Wu, these nobles who now hated him were numerous and the majority in all government levels, including his own court. Sarcasm, it's not lucky for him, it's terrible. So, uh-oh. So with no friends in the government, and knowing that these nobles took about most spots in the Han court and Han government, Emperor Wu realized he had to do something. So he went grassroots. Under the table, he recruits a bunch of young people who were supporters of him, but they're not nobles. They're just regular people who were getting there by merit, and he promotes them himself to several positions in mid-level government, essentially to infiltrate the government, his own government. He gets loyal supporters to infiltrate, and he calls them the insider court. That's what history knows them as. Emperor Wu goes out of his way to make a government court that is sympathetic to him. And more interestingly, and this is where he's a little more authoritarian, these officials, who usually are in a totem pole that is separated from the emperor, you know, there's a chain of command, these officials took orders directly from Emperor Wu. Emperor Wu, who lost a lot of his friends in the nobility due to these reforms, put his hand back into the pot and began pulling the strings from the inside. These officials, while they were mid-level, had real authority. And they became a very powerful force against the, quote, outsider court, which were the nobles who hated Emperor Wu. He also, on top of this, so as we know from our Han Dynasty Society episode, there were the three lords and the nine ministers, a way of high court governance. And they were all obviously anti-reform. These guys were the nobles who hated the plans that Emperor Wu laid out. But these mid-level guys who were all seemingly a hive mind of reform were able to push back against them. And on top of that, Emperor Wu went more grassroots. He found scholars and he got them to enroll in government services across the dynasty. So it wasn't just the capital now. He was getting these really loyal but homegrown supporters to go out to different off you know, local offices and pull the strings from there too. It's genius. And luckily for Emperor Wu, once the Grand Empress Dowager died, the one who really was stoking family push against his plans, he was really able to push his ideas and reforms more at will. Emperor Wu, through all these wars, did begin to hold power more tightly. And this is a point of his authoritarianism and almost paranoia. He would constantly tour his commanderies himself. 
you'll see the map. The Han Dynasty is huge. And yes, all the other emperors go around and they tour the land once every couple years. But Emperor Wu was constantly touring, more than anyone else in his position. He became obsessed with honor and power. And that was actually a big reason for a lot of the aforementioned conquests. Emperor Wu, yes, did simply throw the Han army at problems. And allegedly, that's why the Minyue did what they did. Because they did their invasions as a preemptive measure because they knew the Han would probably soon invade them. I don't buy that necessarily. But Emperor Wu was a power-hungry, paranoid guy. He had to be there all the time. He felt this need to be at every position and outpost and be the one in charge. But he also began to bring magicians around with him wherever he went. And he began to pray to all the gods while he was traveling. And all of these signs point to that he may have been looking for immortality to some degree. Not to Ching Shi Huang Di's degree, but he was definitely looking at something in that ballpark. Oh, and to show his authoritarianism, after reading how Sima Qian, yes, that Sima Qian, was a bit negative about him and his father, Emperor Jing, he, um, yeah, he castrated Sima Qian. Yeah, that actually happened. Anyway. Emperor Wu is remembered well, and mainly because he was the right man at the right time, like a Churchill. Put him in peacetime, eh, who knows how he does, but put him in a high-stress environment where you have to be able to make big decisions and control the levers of power at the most important times, Emperor Wu was fantastic. Though, we'll talk about this next week too, because we will have to wrap him up next week, not this one. But there was an issue with finance. He didn't drain all the coffers, but this amount of war puts stress on your industry. Things you don't necessarily think about when you think of war. When you think of war, you think of losing the men and you think of the loss of money from paying those men. But you also lose things in industry. All the iron that has to be made, the salt provisions, the food, it all begins to take a toll. And we'll get to that. But in essence, for Emperor Wu, the wars, the expansion, and the push towards full Confucianism, this is all so important. Not just for the immediate, but for the future history of China. Even in modern China, the region of the Hushi Corridor is still a major contentious point in China. And I know we are getting really into the weeds with the Han Dynasty, but that's because this period is not only just truly fascinating, it's one of the most cohesive and expansionistic and growing dynasties the Chinese will ever have. No, it's not the only one. There's tons of other ones. They're all interesting for their own reasons. But they were also written about vividly by chroniclers like Sima Qian. There will be periods where the history is less clear, or clearly filled with more propaganda. But not here. I mean, it is, but the history is vivid. And I love it because this is written about at the same time as the golden age of Rome. Anyway, I'm fanboying about the, uh, the Han Dynasty. But if you're still listening to this episode and this show and don't like military history, don't worry. The wars are winding down. 
Yes, there'll be rebellions and there'll be some incursions, but I know we've been focusing on war pretty heavily. But that is not because, again, we've taken some new focus. That is just because, well, this is a period of war. So with that, we will have to do a society check-in soon. Going over the society, the politics, and obviously, yes, as we move to Confucianism, that is a big facet of society we'll have to go over again. So how about you guys email me or comment me questions you have about the Han society? Literally, any facet. It could be the military if you really love it. And I will try and add them to that society-wide check-in when I get to it. Because I want to know what you guys want to know. I already have an email talking about matchmaking, and that is, don't worry, if you're still listening, I'm not going to say your name in public, but if you want me to, I will. But that is added to the future script. Whether it's the matchmaking, the technological advancements, the waterworks, tax policy, I don't know. Language, whatever you are interested in about the Han Dynasty right now or anything about China up until around year zero, I will happily add it. Also, before I let you guys go, I am graduated. And I'm about to start working in the real world, which should be more easy because I doubt a 9 to 5 will have me working on a giant math equation till 3 in the morning or working on a public policy memo. So I will still be able to get the episodes out much more on time. But some of you have asked for personal information. And no, not in a weird way. But maybe, I'm thinking, around episode 50 or so, at the rate the show's growing, we can have an episode about me, the show, the Bears, Duke basketball, music, I don't know, anything. I'm more than just Chinese history. And if you guys want to get to know me or the show better, I would love, potentially, if there's interest, to have an episode about that. But remember, to rate the show and subscribe and follow, five stars, comments, emails, whatever. I love it. Share the show with your friends. I love making this show, and I love that you guys love it as much as I do. So, Emperor Wu's last years, that'll all be next week. So, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next week on the History of China.